Now will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. We are reading only four short verses this morning, but four verses that are full of important matter for us. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. You will find the book of Ecclesiastes, if you were a visitor, just after the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, and I would encourage you to follow the reading in the Bible from the pew rack in front of you. Verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right word. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end and much study wearies the body. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to his most holy name. Now, almost the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes is behind us now. And we have traveled on a very long journey together across these many months, a journey that is not quite completed, but shortly will be in these coming Sunday mornings. And you will remember that as we have come to this last, final chapter of a great and wonderful and somewhat mysterious book of Scripture, that we came to that great epilogue of verse 8, a little before our reading this morning, that reminded us of what the unconverted man, the unbelieving man, makes of daily human life. He can only come to one conclusion as he lives his life out under the sun without any reference to God and his ways and his word and his purposes. And that conclusion is meaningless, meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. And throughout the whole of this book, we have heard that cry again and again. Futility of futilities. And here in that verse, we heard it for the very last time. Now the question, beloved, that we have been facing all through this book and face in a particular and powerful and poignant way as we come to chapter 12 is this. How can we prevent that great sentence and summary being written over our own lives? like grim graffiti that would be placed on our tombstone one day. He lived a life that was utterly meaningless in this world. How can we avoid a verdict and an epitaph like that? And we have to ask the question as we come to these concluding sections of Ecclesiastes, is there more than futility and emptiness in human life? Yes, thankfully, we've seen there is by tantalizing hints and suggestions all through the book. 
But now we come to the point where Ecclesiastes is not content to sign off on that despairing note. He wants us, in verses 9 through 12, to see why he wrote the book so that no one can possibly mistake or misunderstand his great message. And we began to see this in the overview that I took with you of this whole chapter 12 last Sunday morning. God as creator and shepherd and judge at the last. But here in this section and these verses, the one shepherd is showing himself at last in this closing epilogue. He's no longer dimly in the shadows. He's come out into the foreground as Ecclesiastes shares with us the whole purpose, why he wrote this fascinating book. And it's what I've called, you notice, a way with words. Because he's saying to us, the whole purpose of these 12 chapters is that I might give you an expository message and an evangelistic message that leads you in a certain direction, and an exclusive message that is utterly unique. And I want you this morning to look at this passage with me in the light of these three great divisions of it. There are only four verses, and you may have read it before you came to the service and said, now what on earth is there in this passage for me this morning? And I want to suggest to you that first of all, there is an expository message, an expository ministry in verses 9 and 10. Read them again. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now look you this morning. Here is a remarkable and rare glimpse, my dear friends, into the writing of Holy Scripture, particularly into the writing of this magnificent and mysterious and fascinating book of Ecclesiastes. Do you see what he's saying to us? That he took painstaking labor over many years, it seems, to compile it for the instruction of God's people in truth and righteousness. Think of it. The many hours he spent shut away, closeted in his study alone. The many months and probably years that he spent out in the highways and byways of human life observing with a great intellect and a great insightfulness and incisiveness the ways and habits of men. He examined the varied tapestry of human life. He went into the farms and villages, the towns and cities and markets. He saw the old craftsmen at work 
in one place. He saw the hustle and bustle of city life in another place. He called in at offices and saw the businesses that were conducted there and the money that changed hands. He conducted us through the king's palaces. He took us into homes of all kinds, as you can remember. He took us into the temple and made us attend the services. And we heard vows being made, but not kept. And worshipped being offered, but not with sincerity. And so we could go on and on. He studied life. He read the newspapers, if they existed in that day, to see what was going on and analyze it with the light of heaven shining down upon the page before him. He meditated and he prayed to understand what God is saying through all of human life. Now do you grasp the meaning of these verses 9 and 10? Because the purpose, beloved, of it all, you notice, in the middle of verse 9 is what? To impart knowledge to the people. Now do you see what he's doing? The reason I went on this journey, he says, the reason that I examined life, as it were, with a microscope, and looked at the distant things with a telescope that I might see them more clearly and accurately. The reason that underlies this painstaking task that now comprises my book of Ecclesiastes is to communicate the wisdom from God that I have found to others to enable them to avoid the pitfalls and the snares and the cul-de-sacs, the dead ends that we would otherwise go down and perish in them to find positively a life that is truly worth living, to impart knowledge. Now, beloved, it's vital for us to grasp that this morning. Why have we been in the book of Ecclesiastes for ten months? Some of you might say, it's ten months too long. Because Ecclesiastes' whole purpose is to promote a learning congregation. Because a learning congregation, beloved, is a growing congregation and a strengthening congregation and a congregation that is beginning to live for the glory of God in a world that is characterized by futility and emptiness and vanity. Now listen to me. We're living, aren't we, in a world and a day where there's confusion about the Christian message. In the world, we would expect it to be so. But in the church, there's confusion about the Christian message as well, what the ministry should be doing, what Christians should be doing, what the essence of the gospel really is. And the point is, according to Ecclesiastes, 
But it's only when God's people become knowledgeable in the word and ways of God that the Christian faith shines with the pristine beauty and powerfulness that is its very essence and character. Do you know what the tragedy of this present age is, beloved, in the church? The tragedy is this, that we are living in an age, and it's our privilege to live in an age, of the knowledge explosion. There has never been so much education made so widely available to everyone in society as there is today. Colleges and universities are accessible to everybody in a way they have not been generations ago. The television gives us continually a learning experience in documentary after documentary as it examines life and knowledge. But the tragedy, beloved, is this, that in the church there is apparently an unwillingness to learn and apply the truth of God to our lives. Why did I write this book? To impart knowledge, says Ecclesiastes, to God's people. And I want to say to you this morning that do you know why the church is so weak and ineffective today? Because it's weak and ineffective in its very source and center here, And it spells disaster not only for this generation, but for whole generations to come. But the church is existing so often on the froth of the Christian life, the exciting experiences, the things that have an immediate and obvious result in men's lives. And they're not willing to dig deep into the scripture and see the glory of God and the purposes of God with his people and the mystery of God and the majesty of God. And I want to say to you this morning, have you been bored with Ecclesiastes? May God help you, my brother, my sister, because if you're bored with this, you are bored with the whole of scripture. And you are in the greatest danger of all. Because this, my dear friend, is the most vital message and piece of knowledge that you will ever hear in your whole life long. It is the one shepherd imparting knowledge to God's people. And beloved, let me remind you that the reason why people should go to church is not to suck a sweet secretively as they sit in the pew or to use the time meditatively to think about the Sunday lunch or what they're going to do next week or the business problem they encountered last week or whatever it might be. The purpose that people should sit in church is to train themselves to learn and to listen and to acquire the knowledge that the writers of Scripture so painstakingly sought with the light of heaven shining down upon that writing in the living inspiration of Almighty God. 
And you see, that's the message that he's been communicating to us, an expository ministry, a ministry that unpacks, as it were, the meaning of life in the light of God's word. Now, do you notice how he did it? He tells us in a wonderful way the manner and form of it. It was orderly, and it was appropriate, and it was authentic. Let me say a quick word about these things. They're all there at the end of verse 9, if you look at it in your Bible. He set in order many proverbs. And you see, we have a wonderful window into how the scriptures were written. They were not written haphazardly. He selected his material carefully. He set it out in order. And even though this man was divinely inspired, this man was not a typewriter with God pressing the keys and scripture came out at the other end on the paper. We see the employment of the human faculties to the full. I searched out and set in order the many proverbs that have characterized the wisdom of this book to make my teaching effective, that it might be in an orderly way, he says. And such a storehouse of practical wisdom this is, so deep a knowledge of the human mind does it display and heart, so accurate an observation of the ways of men, that I think some of us to our dying day will remember some of these expositions. I hope, from the book of Ecclesiastes, but have the stamp of God upon them, working upon an orderly human mind. Here is a man who is not so proud that he has no time for lesser minds. He studies down a matter to make it accessible even to the most unintelligent person. And it needs all the skill and integrity and charm and courage of an artist and a scholar to do justice to these things. As Derek Kidner says in his fine commentary upon this passage, this man, Ecclesiastes, should be the patron saint of all writers. And so he should. It was orderly, but do you notice it was appropriate to find out just the right words at the end of verse 9? In Hebrew, it's literally words of pleasure and delight. Now listen, Ecclesiastes was not written to baffle us, but to delight us, not to confuse us, but to clarify the issues, not to depress and dismay us, but to bring delight to our hearts. He tells us this. He sought out words of pleasure and delight. When you go home from this service this morning, read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12 again, the description of the old man going down eventually into death. See how effective these beautiful words really were. They're so memorable. They anchor themselves in your mind. They're fixed and fastened there. And this man indeed was a worthy forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember so many of his memorable statements and sayings. We read some of them this morning. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's music in those words. And Ecclesiastes does the same thing. They're appropriate words that he's chosen. And you know, Jim Packer is right when he says that Jesus was an Ecclesiastes man. He was all of that. But you notice they were also authentic words. What he wrote was upright and true, we read. You see, this man, unlike so many other preachers today, did not just choose pleasing words and nice things to say and express them well in a way that would be interesting and memorable to catch and hold the attention of his congregation. He told them the truth as well. He did not do the one thing at the expense of the other. And what I see happening in the church so often is the pleasing words in abundance, but at the expense of truth. This was something he was never willing to sacrifice. He wrote what was upright and true. And we've seen it all through the book, haven't we? We've seen it even in that beautiful description in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 12 that we read twice recently. It's memorable, it's poetic, it's musical. But at the end of it, he faces us with the reality that if you live life into old age without God, the epitaph on your tomb at the end is going to me, I found life to be meaningless and empty, a vanity of vanities. What a lesson to the church today, isn't it? You know, it's hard for us to come to Scripture and accept the truth about ourselves as being necessary, isn't it? And it's so strange. If you go to the doctor when you have a physical need and a health need and he gives you some unpleasant news, you don't say, I'm not going to listen to you, doctor. I think my case is altogether different. You don't expect him to spin a web of fantasy. But you know what I find in the church so often is that we want to live in a world of fantasy. Tell us the good things and the nice things, says the modern church today, the things that make us happy. And they forget that biblical happiness and joyfulness is founded like everything else upon the truth of God being known and received. And you know, in this session, small as it is, one of the sad experiences that we have to face, even among our small numbers, is members who refuse to face their spiritual condition. And though we as elders tell them true and upright words, that they need to institute family worship, that they need to be regular in the means of grace, that they need to take the Christian life both joyfully and seriously, it's as though they hear as if they heard not. Give us pleasing counsel and easy counsel and we'll do it. But for this, no response. How utterly tragic to play fast and loose with the counsel of the one shepherd 
who longs to lead us into the rich pasturages of his own word and by the still refreshing waters. If only we would obey. Now, my dear friends, do you see that this is an expository message? It gives the lie to every interpretation of this book that says it's an inexplicable conundrum, a mystery. What I wrote, he says, was pleasant words, in an orderly way, to aid your understanding, words of uprightness and faithfulness and truth. It's a straightforward book. The very Hebrew word for upright means straightness. The very Hebrew word for truth means faithfulness. And we are to rely upon what he has written and find it not cynical and pessimistic and out of contrast with all the other scriptures, but rather a faithful testimony to the immutable infallibility of God's revelation of himself. My dear friends, have you found this ministry through Ecclesiastes expository? In that way, I trust you have. But do you notice with me, secondly, that it's not only expository, it's evangelistic as well in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings, that is, the collected sayings of the wise, are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now, what's the meaning of that? The meaning is that the inspired book of Ecclesiastes is a divine message from the great shepherd designed to lead us in a certain direction and to aid us in traveling that direction. Words have been given by the shepherd that are like nails and like goads, as we'll see in a moment. But I want you to notice with me first that in verse 11 we have one of the very few glimpses that Scripture gives of the process of inspiration, the process by which these men of old received and transmitted the Word of God in an infallible way, in a way that is without error, so that Scripture contains the Word of God and nothing but the Word of God. Do you notice in verse 11 that these ancient writers were much more knowledgeable than we give them credit for? They knew what was happening. They were fully aware that God was using them in a unique way to give a unique word of God. Because the words mentioned here and the collected sayings of the wise refer to the Holy Scriptures. And beyond any shadow of doubt, what Ecclesiastes is claiming is unity with the writers of Scripture. I am one with them. I am an author of divinely inspired Holy Writ. Because my words, like theirs, were given to me by the one shepherd, the Lord God, Jehovah, the source on whom all of us are to depend, the everlasting God, the everlasting Son of God, the church's chief and great shepherd, gave me this message to deliver to you. 
And it's a remarkable picture of the great shepherd breathing his own mind into the mind of the several penmen of Scripture, thus preserving the revelation of God contained therein from all possibility of error and providing it for our security and our abiding testimony. Now, do you notice that the key words are the words goads and nails? What do they mean? Well, God is saying to us, I am the great shepherd. I have given you the message of this book and these other books to lead you in the direction in which you will find me and to aid you in that journey. My word is like a goad and it's like a nail fastened firmly in a sure place. Now, a goad is a stick with a sharp point on the end of it. And sharp points, beloved, can be highly motivating. If you've ever sat down on one, you'll know what I mean. And Ecclesiastes is telling us that this book was written to prod you into godly action. How often have you seen it? In chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, wasn't that a prod to our conscience? When you pay a vow to the Lord, be well sure that you make haste to pay it because God does not delight in fools. Chapter 9, verse 10, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What counsel to the Christian. Chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And in verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and in the evening. Do not withhold your hand, because you do not know what will prosper, whether this or that. Chapter 12, verse 1. The greatest goad in many ways and prod of all, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Beloved, even believers need to be goaded out of their inertia and their disinclination to move in a godly direction. And I want to say to you how easy it would be this morning, if an expository ministry, a teaching ministry, were always effective. But our hearts and our minds are such, my dear friends, but it isn't. It's not like that. I wish it were like that. It would make my task so much easier, but I know my own heart as I know your heart. And we are like oxen, and we need the man coming behind us when we are in that sluggish pace to urge us on with that prod from the sharp goad so that we plough a straight furrow and turn neither to the right nor to the left. And so the preacher has the unenviable task of being the goad, forcing us back again and again into the pasturages of God's word from which we have strayed. And who does not need it this morning, slumbering in cold formality it may be, hearing the word of God as though we heard it not? What a mercy it is to fear, feel that piercing point 
of the shepherd's goad behind us. What a blessing it is to know from the New Testament scriptures that all scripture is inspired of God for what purpose? For reproof, as well as for instruction in righteousness. Now, my dear friends, not only is it a goad, but also it's a nail I want you to notice. And that's a reference, surely, to the immovable truth of God. Do you realize in these ten months what we have been dealing with is not the thoughts of men that are spoken into the air and vanish forever. We have been dealing with the immovable truth of Almighty God. Nails give strength and firmness. And you see, what he's saying to us is that activity is not enough. To feel the goad behind us, prodding us on, is not enough. Man's activity needs to be solidly grounded in God's immovable truth. And the tragedy in many churches, I hope not in ours, is that there's a multitude of activity by men and women who think that they are in the way of life and being led by the shepherd, but their activities are not grounded in God's immovable truth. They're grounded in their own grand ideas about themselves and about what being a Christian really is. And Ecclesiastes, all through this book, I need not remind you, has presented us again and again with immovable truth about God, about man, about the whole complexity of human life and its meaning. Christian, let me ask you this morning, do you realize the immense, incalculable importance and value of this fixing work of God, like nails in a sure place. Do you realize that every atom of truth in this book is worth a world of gold and silver? Do you realize that if for want of care, a careless attitude to worship an unthoughtful attitude to preaching, an unwillingness to learn from the word of God, it slips away. Then the enemy immediately rushes in to fill up the vacuum with his trifles. What have you been doing in these ten months? Have you still been earnestly following the options that Ecclesiastes has long since discarded and thrown away? Or have you been receiving his counsel as a nail in a sure place, grounding your life in the immovable truth and infallibility of God's teaching about the vanity of human life? Let me tell you and make no mistake about it, Truth slightingly valued is easily lost. And how terrible is that loss? Do you see what I'm saying? It's an evangelistic ministry. The whole point of my book, he says, has been lost and wasted on you unless evangelistically it has been leading you to the great shepherd 
and to his word that is like a gold and a nail in a sure place that you might found your whole life on what I'm teaching you and what I'm telling you. The goads that will lead us to the shepherd, the nails, are fastening God's immovable truth in our minds and consciences so that we can never be the same people exactly again. And you know, as I said, the evidence that this is happening is that you're throwing away all the baubles and the trifles and the bubbles that burst under your weight that most men live for in this life. And you're remembering your Creator and you're trusting your shepherd and you're fearing before your judge as we saw last Sunday. That's the proof that you've really listened to the message of Ecclesiastes because it's evangelistic. Now, thirdly and very quickly, it is also exclusive. I'm sure some of you looked at verse 12 and you scratched your heads and you said, what on earth is he saying? Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. What a pity the NIV separated that last sentence of verse 12 from the rest. They shouldn't have done so. The translators obviously didn't understand the verse. It's one continuous piece of thought that we should not separate in our minds or in our Bibles. And what he's saying to us is this, if we've really understood the message of Ecclesiastes, we see it not only as expository and evangelistic, but exclusive as well. And what he means in that strange verse is this, that some people who have been listening to this message and heard this preaching do not want to find an answer. They do not want to arrive at a solution. They want to continue the search. Now, there are people like that, you know. Maybe we've got them in this congregation, I hope not, who are more interested in the excitement of the chase than they are of arriving at the destination, of making the journey than of getting to the end of it of asking the questions than of finding the answer to them. Because, you see, an answer would spoil everything. And some people are like that. And in a very wonderful and memorable way, Ecclesiastes is warning such people and addressing that situation in verse 12, and affectionately he's counseling us to give attention exclusively to what he has written. There is no need, he says, to prolong the quest for the meaning of life, to give ourselves to the never-ending frustrating task of searching out elsewhere for life's meaning. He's not discouraging us from all study, but from the useless, tiring reading and studying in our own attempts to unravel the meaning of life. There is no need for it, he says. The answer is here in this humanly transmitted and divinely inspired book that I have written. And if you go beyond it, you will end up with futility and meaninglessness. 
because this is God's exclusive word about the meaning and purpose of human existence. Now, it seems almost an impertinence, doesn't it? Read my book, he says, and ignore all the others. What impertinence. I've given you my book, and I'm warning you against reading anything else. Why? Because it's the word of the one shepherd. It's a warning to set nothing, beloved, nothing above our Bibles. And there is a sense in which every believer here this morning is to be a man of one book. Because when we sense the value of this truth exclusively, we are in the presence of God. And when we seek after the value of other supposed truth and light and revelation, we are already in the atmosphere, mark you, of error. Oh, my God, write upon my heart and conscience the words of this, your book. Let me bow to their authority. With undisputed faith, let me receive them. With grateful acknowledgement, let me believe them. With unreserved obedience, let me follow after them. Let the Bible satisfy me in every quest and problem with which life may present me. Because to be wise without this light is to be altogether foolish. Now as I finish, do you see what I've been saying to you this morning? Expository, evangelistic, exclusive. What does all this mean for us? Simply this. After all the questions of this book, after all the intense probings into life of this man, the answer is given not by human philosophy, not by human psychology, not by man's sociology, not in human ingenuity and intelligence, never that. But if we ask, the questions of the right person, God, the one shepherd, we will begin to find the right answers. You see, the end and issue of all of this is that he longs to lead us into the rich pasturages of his own word, to give us knowledge just the right words, the words of the wise, the collected sayings given by one shepherd, on which at all times God's people can richly feed. My friend, have you found this so? Have you been there? Have you seen these answers provided in this book? Have you learned to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest? Because there's enough here for five lifetimes. And we've just taken ten months. Be humble. Accept what you are given in this book. You'll find more and more. We need to heed these words, but beloved, we need to do more. Through them we need to come to the greatest wise man who ever lived, the master sage, the one wiser than Solomon ever was, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And as the Father had put the key of knowledge and life into his Son's hands, we need to come to that Master Sage and say to him, Unlock for me the secret of your words and ways. Lead me to yourself. You who are the final word of wisdom, open my mind and heart to your truth and make me yours. Let me ask you this morning, are you where you should be spiritually? Are you with the one shepherd? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, from this puzzling and seemingly perplexing passage of Scripture, we have seen so much truth. Bless it to us in this lengthy exposition. May we be those who learn from the Word of God, the collected sayings of the wise, the words given by the one shepherd, that they in turn may lead us to the great shepherd to serve him all our life long. Amen.